Catherine, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for coming on Scale Up with Harmony, the show where we focus on different ideas, philosophies around scaling up your business, our businesses, without sacrificing any aspect of our lives. So let me start off with uh, you introducing us to your world. Uh, what do you do? Uh, what's your business about? Who do you work with? And what kind of problem you solve for them? Sure. Um, I have an IT consulting business. I specialize in project management methodology. I'm considered a subject matter, uh, matter expert in disaster recovery, probably setting up project management organizations and cloud migrations. So generally, if there's some kind of a large multi-million dollar problem with uh, a client in their disaster recovery or business continuity or within their project management organization, some C-level person will call me up and ask me to either come in and fix some stuff. Um, I should mention I'm also on the advisory board for UC Riverside for their uh, transformative leadership program. And, uh, you know, I'm a member of PMI and have um, a lot of really boring uh, technical certifications. <laughs> okay, beautiful. Thanks for that. What typically the size of clients you're working with? Yeah, and usually um, it's it's funny because in my career I really liked working for this sort of uh, 500 million to a billion dollar type of clients. I'm still kind of in that in that range because I've found that those companies are the ones either about to pop or go through major changes. And it's where I really can come in and offer the most advice for them. Okay, beautiful. So if we were to go back in time, I would love to hear about who was Catherine growing up when you were your teens, uh, when you were a little bit younger, sure. uh, and what got you into this field? Yeah, um, I kind of fell into this field. But um, when I was growing up, uh, I guess as a teenager, I loved rock and roll music. So I became a disc jockey at KZSU in Stanford. And then I went on to be an intern at KSAN, which is a very popular radio station. As a matter of fact, a book just came out about that called Jive 95. Totally crazy. The 70s, late San Francisco, uh, 10 years after the summer of love. So it was kind of an unusual time. I went to work for Polygram Record. I got into sort of the entertainment industry and um, spent 10 years doing that. Um, I loved it, but there was a lot of unsavory aspects of the business, I guess I could say. Um, and it was fun being wild. But um, one day I was in San Francisco and I had a great job and I was thinking I had like the perfect house and the perfect boyfriend. And there was an earthquake in 89, October 89. And the place where I worked was destroyed. And a week later, as I was going back to work to pick up my stuff, I got hit by a car in a crosswalk. And so um, that really sort of changed my trajectory and made me completely rethink my life at the time. Thanks for sharing that. I'd love to hear more about that transition. So you had an unfortunate event that happened to you. What was next leading into you getting into uh, the IT space? Yeah. So after I get hit by the car, um, it's funny because when you're critically ill, you sort of realize who your friends are. And a lot of people just drifted away. Um, and I realized who I could count on and who I couldn't because it took me a good six months to a year to recover. And I realized once I recover, I hadn't been to Europe. I thought I was working way too much. I just um, felt like I'd been sort of in a tunnel vision. So I took some time off and I, I went to Europe and, I don't know, saw a lot of art and culture. And 
and came back and thought, I want to do some, I want to do something different. I don't want to work in the entertainment industry anymore. The other thing that was really heartbroken is after spending all those years in the entertainment industry and bonding with those people, when I was in the hospital, not one person sent me a get well card, which really at the time was heartbreaking. But, um, Years later, I was talking to some of these people. And when I mentioned that, they said, well, the reason we didn't is because you were the one who did stuff like that. Everybody relied on me to sort of be that sort of diplomatic ambassador at the time, uh, which made sense when they said that to me. But at the time, it, it really took a dig at my psyche that I had worked with these people for so long and nobody seemed to care. Um, it just bothered me when I truly cared about them. So it was time for a change. Um, that being said, I was very technical. I was working in kind of a technical capacity in the industry. So um, I was lucky where I found a job with a startup who was willing to kind of take a chance on me. And the startup went big. So that was sort of where I gathered some of my first software and IT industry experience. I also liked it. It was exciting at the time, like the entertainment industry, we were on the cutting edge of technology. I felt like we were making um, great changes in some of the workplace with some of the software we were providing. So there was kind of an excitement about it that I, I found exhilarating. Okay, beautiful. So I guess at some point you were a full-time employee and throughout your journey, you decided to go on your own and then run your own your own thing. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I was an older woman when I started. I was in my 30s or 40s when I started. So I was working with 25-year-old Harvard MBAs who, frankly, were all very nice, by the way. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, climbed the corporate ladder as, as much as I could. But there were, uh, e even in 2015, I would go to big meetings and I would still be the only women in the room. It wasn't I wouldn't say the IT industry was super great towards women at the time. It was a battle and there was definitely a glass ceiling. And there were times where I was a director and I was expected to do two or three jobs and I was making less money than my male counterparts. Um, you couldn't sue because then you get a reputation and nobody was hiring you. So it wasn't like I could, I could claim discrimination or anything, but, um, but it was there and it was underlying. And also the last few jobs I had had, I had noticed that they sort of, as they were doing layoffs, were laying off, you know, the older people. One of them I thought for sure was age discrimination because my boss had made a comment about my age. And I called the head of head of HR and he was like, I got laid off too. <laughs> he was older than me. Yeah. Certainly I was old enough. I was in my 50s. I could have retired. I certainly had the means to retire. But uh, I don't want to be pushed out like that. Like, I still felt I had a lot of stuff to offer and to work. And, you know, I had a good 30 years experience um, in IT. So I decided to hang up my uh, consulting, you know, sign at the time and just start my own consulting business. I think everybody thought I was crazy at 58 to start my own business and to start a consulting business. But keep in mind, you know, I had a background. I had worked for consulting companies. Um, I had led a lot of international projects. So I knew that I had the chops to do this. I also, at one point, had worked for companies where I had four or 8,000 clients. So I had a very good contact list, which helped me. And I knew that there were a lot of people who respected me in the industry that I had worked with. 
So I um, got some legal advice and got some accounting advice and started talking to entrepreneurs and decided just to hang up my sign. And within three months, I had a contract that paid me what I usually make for a year and a half in six months. Yeah, that's always great, right? That's always yeah. great. Yeah. Now, and I could control my own schedule. So it didn't impact uh, my personal life nearly as much as some of these other jobs I had where it was literally like, you know, 80 hours a week. And it was just, you know, going down a, a hole. Like some days I would just be so exhausted and have so much stuff to do. And um, I felt like this, it's like, great, I can con control my schedule. The other thing that I liked is sometimes in a corporate world, you're forced to take jobs you don't necessarily want to do, or you know they're going to fail, or there's a lot of political problems around them. And if somebody called me up now with a gig that I didn't like, I could say no. Okay. Can you actually give me an example of an ideal gig that you you definitely jump in with your eyes closed versus another, the other one that'll be, that you'll think twice if you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm usually doing fairly large stuff. So an ideal gig for me is when somebody from the C-level, a CEO or a CTO or the CFO calls me um. As somebody that I've worked with before, who I know is a reasonable per person, identifies the problem correctly and really understands what I can do to help fix the problem or I, how I can work with them. Um, and they're also willing, you know, to pay a certain amount and are more or less reasonable about your hours. They're not making it a hundred hour week, you know, saying you have to be on calls at 4 a.m. or um, trying to like work you to death in minutia, right? So um, that's that's a good client, right? Um, just just today, <laughs> I had a, a CTO, a chief technology officer, uh, send me an email, which is sort of funny. And he uh, actually said, "I have I have a real beep project." <laughs> Absolutely. I think I need you to to come and straighten out. Um, so you know, he's honest about it. I had worked with him before, and so. Uh, of course, I'm going to talk to him. If I don't know if I'm going to take the project or not, but I, I'm at least willing to talk to him. The projects I don't like are where you know maybe it's kind of a startup company, and you know money can be a little iffy. They don't really understand project management, and the CEO thinks I can do a miracle. But for instance, I took this one gig, and I came in, and everybody had been working like you know 80 hours a week for months and they were all sick and they were all burnt out. And I had to go back to the CEO and go, I can't fix tired. Like these people are tired. So they need a refresh or they need a break or you need to alleviate some of this because they just can't keep doing this. It's not physically impossible. Right. Um, so that's a sample of like maybe a not so great gig okay. uh, to the CEO's credit. He, he understood that they were tired. So like he understood that problem, but I, I basically said, listen, all the problems you're experiencing are people are exhausted. They're burnt out. They're cranky, right? You can't you can't fix that if people are overworked, right? What are the symptoms? What are the signs that indicate that, okay, here the person that I have in front of me or the 
organization in front of me, my age or my gender, you know, that need this discussion. What are some signs or some flags for somebody that, that, that might be in your shoes, but that may not know or may not be able to see those signs? Right. Well, um, you know, I tend to look at who their executives are. A lot of times if there's, you know, not a woman or not a woman director, that can be a little bit of a flag, right? You know, everybody's under 40. Sometimes that can be a flag. I actually uh, went to work for a company and it was mostly younger people. And I had an opening on my team. Um, I hired a gentleman in his 50s. And in the lunchroom one day, I overheard a lot of staff wondering, quote, why Catherine hired that old guy. And I walked in and said, A, he was the most qualified B, don't be ages, and C, I needed an adult in the room, right? This was a guy with the experience. Right. So I like told them that and they all kind of hushed up. But um, and I at the time was older than the guy. So I didn't want to say anything like, hey, I'm older, but you can't be ages. So I just tend to call people on it right away if that's a problem. I mean, you know, I've had to remind HR too, like, let's not be ageist. Let's see who's the best fit. And frankly, this guy was a model worker, retired with the company, stayed there long after everybody else left um, and, you know, was an excellent performer. So in the long run, he was a, a good fit for the company. I He was there long after I left. And, and on the flip side, have you come across either younger or older folks who are not a good fit, not because of the age, but it could be culture, it could be fast pace or slow pace or whatever the case may be, just playing devil's, devil's advocate here for a second. You ever yeah. come across that? Of course. You know, obviously I've talked to people who are not, um, depending upon what company you're with, project management can be can be a tough gig. You have to be, you have to be a diplomat, you have to be a communicator, you know, you have to pay a lot of attention to a lot of details. And some project managers maybe want a job that's very big or very complicated, right? Some of them are just interested in doing reports. Some would rather just do risk management. So there were some that were more focused towards other things where, you know, maybe what we were doing in the consulting world or the cloud world was not necessarily the best fit for them. So certainly, I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of people you know, and the best are those that are honest about their experience, the experiences, you know, that I had certain jobs and there's certain HR interviews that they have to pass. And, um, you know, a lot of times we would ask hard questions and we were looking for people sometimes to say, hey, I don't know that, but I'm willing to learn that. You don't want people to like fudge their way through the interviews, right? Where I think if you're younger, sometimes you'll try and like BS your way through it where it's like, hey, we're looking for somebody just to be honest about, hey, I don't know this, but I think I'm smart enough to figure it out, right? Okay. kind of want that quality in people. So um, I I would say there was, you know, some of that with some of the younger candidates. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, job descriptions are just job descriptions. Until you really talk to somebody and get an idea, then you can kind of figure out if it's a good fit or not. I'm not a great fit for a lot of projects. You know, I I do turn down certain projects because I know I'm not the right person. You know, if they want somebody who um, maybe is going to do nothing but generate reports and do charts that's not me right i'd rather hire somebody else to do that or you need to get somebody else it just kind of depends on what you're looking i'm sort of more uh you know hands-on person 
you know, getting dirty, fixing what I can within the organization. Um, obviously, as as a project manager, I do provide a lot of reports. I do a lot of training. But, you know, some jobs are slated more one way than the other. Some some companies, their project managers, they just care that the reports look good. That's all they care about, right? And they don't want to fix the underlying stuff. Well, that's, to me, you know, I don't like playing those games because it's like I'd rather be honest with management, right, and trying to fix stuff. But there are some companies that are like that. They just care about, you know, your call time and your minutes. And I get it because in IT, you're tracking this and you have to have performance reports. But it doesn't always, having good reports doesn't always lead to good service in project management. So I would say that's another quality I look for in companies who really care about providing good customer service, right? Mm Because, I mean, that's, it's important. You know, I worked for a company for many years and they would say, Catherine, if in a problem with a client, do the right thing. You know, you have the authority to do the right thing. So if some client had been messed up or screwed over or gotten you know, caught in a bunch of bureaucracy, I had the authority to go in there and do the right thing and fix it for him. And not only me, but even the lower staff. And this company said to people, listen, think about customer service, do the right thing. But you don't always hear that from some companies. Absolutely. Uh, let's say a prospect, if someone is listening and watching to this, whatever some of the symptoms that will indicate that, hey, maybe you should have a conversation with Catherine. Um, well, I would say, especially since the advent of COVID, right? A lot of people, um, those clients who had a good disaster recovery plan, those companies probably pivoted and could deal with COVID a lot better because they had a plan for emergencies. They had a plan at the time, their plans were if it was a hurricane or a fire or something, you know, or a major uh, IT event. Um, Granted, I don't think anybody thought about uh, a pandemic, but, you know, it applied, right? So those clients did. Um, and, you know, the clients who I got coming to me after that did not have a good disaster recovery plan, did not have, you know, testing for their DR plans, hadn't really thought about how do I get people to work from home and be uh, responsible and, you know, and to have them have access to, you know, the stuff that they need to, right? That's all part of your disaster recovery plan. You know, the idea is, you know, if the place burns down, if there's a hurricane, if there's a fire, you know, within 24 to 48 hours, can the business still be up and exist somewhere else? You know, if you don't think your business can do that, then you should really be thinking about a plan. Because in today's world, um, you know, a lot of things I think of as we've seen the last couple of years can go wrong. And to be quite honestly, a lot of people were using das- disaster recovery um, if they've if they got, you know, hit with an IT virus or some people, their sites got taken over and people wanted Bitcoin. Well, they could flip to their DR site if that happened and not be held hostage to you know somebody in Eastern Europe or something uh, hacking them. So um, I think disaster recovery is very important and it came to the forefront. Um, I was lucky. I started in disaster recovery in 2012 where it wasn't really a big thing and continued to work on it. So by the time of the pandemic hit, I was considered a subject matter expert and was lecturing on it, right? So um, people talk about luck a lot. And yeah, it does seem like my consulting career took off, but I had years of experience where I was, you know, working day and night kind of putting in the hours and learning about it. So, you know, while yes, some of it was luck, you know, I'd been 
prepping up about this for years. And I was just in a good position when the pandemic hit where I knew a lot about disaster recovery. So that sort of elevated me. Absolutely. And then did I hear you say that you were teaching disaster recovery at some point? Yeah, I was lecturing for uh, the Project Management Institute, PMI. I had done some lectures for them on disaster recovery and how to put together a plan. Um, I'd been doing seminars on cloud migrations, uh, on PMO optimization. So I had been out in the community of project managers you know, doing webinars, doing seminars, you know, teaching. Sometimes I was just uh, teaching classes so people could get their PMI certs. But yeah, I had been out there lecturing on it too. So that helped. Um, Once in the corporate world in IT, once you kind of reach a certain position, they pretty much insist you be a subject matter expert on something. And the marketing department, they want you to go out there. They want you to write articles. They want you to do webinars. They want you to do seminars. So, so, and they want you to give back to the community. Community. So at least two of the companies I worked for for very, very many years, you know, they expected me to go out there and teach. They expected me to go out there and train. They expected me to go out there and, and do webinars so that they could say in their corporate literature, yes, we have a subject expert who can you know, manage these things. So that just came with part of being a director, right? So it wasn't just like you have a job, you're a director, this is this. There's other expectations of you at that point in the corporate world, at least with the companies I worked with. No, that's actually a great point that I want to dive into. But somebody who's run their own business, they may also also want to be a thought leader and expert and and have literature around their expertise just to get the name out there and solidify the expertise. How would you market department reach out to you? How did you pick the topic? How did you pick the platform? How did you pick uh, the channel? How did you practically work out just if somebody wanted to follow that, your instruction, if they want to replicate that, how would they go about it? So curious to know about, you know, this step-by-step way to becoming the thought leader essentially from what you had done. Right. As a project manager, I've got a PMP through PMI, the project management organization, which has, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million project managers all over the world. They're a worldwide organization. They're the ones that you get your certs from. So around 2012 or 2013, um, they had some big conventions in Denver. I volunteered at those conventions and I ran around and I talked to the speakers and I introduced them and I escorted the speakers and I just kind of got to see how how the inner workings of these conferences work, right? Which was funny because 10 years later, I was actually speaking at that conference, which is a very good, you know, round thing. But I started with my local organizations and I volunteered. And then as I amassed knowledge, I would volunteer more. And then I would start speaking like locally at some smaller stuff and sort of moved up from there. Um, We also had a marketing department who was behind me. So they would consistently say, hey, can you uh, write, you know, an article for this? Um, and one time they land up a, an interview for me in the um, CEO or CIO magazine, right? They said, hey, they want to talk to 10 people. Uh, we want to set up an interview with you. So they helped me with some of those stuff. But, uh, you know, that just helped me garner more press, right? So then, you know, I eventually got, so I had a page of here's press and here's presentation and here's things I've written. They, the marketing people always wanted new stuff and content for the company website. So I volunteered to do that, even though it was a lot of extra work just to get my name out there. 
and to say that I was friendly and the marketing people liked me because I would always say yes and there weren't any other women and it was a woman who was running marketing. So she was very friendly towards, you know, promoting me and helping me in sort of that platform. But yeah, I started just volunteering and thought, okay, this is my niche. I'm going to figure out how this runs. And it was really, it was fun 10 years later when I was one of the presenters at the conference. It was, it was kind of crazy that it went full circle. I never anticipated that. Um, it was something that I had hoped for, but it wasn't really, I was busy with my career. But yeah, I just kind of started and just, you know, talking to who I could and finding out more information. And, you know, all those speakers, I asked them, you know, why are you here? How did you do this? And they all had various stories. But, you know, a lot of it was work experience. It just kind of nose to the grindstone, right? Um, Absolutely. And how do you actually pick the topic? So let's just say, okay, you maybe pinpointed one conference or maybe, uh, a couple of conferences, maybe it could be a small chapters in your in your in your city, or maybe uh, marketing reached out to you, which reaches out to you. How do you pick the topic that would that you want to write to talk about that will resonate with as many people as possible, or at least will help establish you? Because you have a yeah. wealth of knowledge, different areas. I mean, cloud migration, uh, disaster recovery, PMO, and I'm sure a lot more. How do you pick the right topic? and the right format, the right size, so that it uh, it resonates. I mean, I was a PMO director. And within that PMO, we were doing a lot of cloud migrations and disaster recovery and onboarding, right? So that was sort of my niche, right? And more often than not, when people reached out to marketing or me, they would tell me, hey, can you talk about, you know, women in business? Or, hey, we're going from a small PMO to a large PMO, um, for instance, in Pennsylvania, a local organization asked me to talk about that. So they usually kind of already had a topic in mind. If not, right, it's like, okay, well, I work in these three major areas. Those are three major things I can talk about. I can talk about being a woman in business, obviously. So um, it, I just kind of followed what my career, you know, was doing at the time. So, um, you know, and obviously some subjects, you know, I'm not an IT engineer. So if they wanted something on business continuity that was like more engineering related, uh, no. I mean, I can, I can get by with engineering stuff on disaster recovery. I go pretty deep. I'm considered fairly technical and I do have some technical certs. Okay, beautiful. Now let's just squeeze, squeeze gears a little bit in, in the sphere, in the space of harmony in scaling up our businesses. How does that, because we've been talking about your past, your professional background, your business and everything else, but how is that uh, functioning in, in your life as far as family, uh, a personal life? So how do you keep that harmony? What I'm trying to say is, Yes, you have the luxury to now being able to pick and choose your clients so that you don't have to work, you know, doing migration and failover testing and all that overnight. But yet you still have to have a, a what I call a, a life full of harmony, harmonious life. How do you balance the two, um, maybe health, family and everything else so that you're, uh, I don't want to say fulfilled, but at least you, you have a harmonious life. Yeah, well, um, I will say something that was really interesting. So um, once I started my own bu own business, and by the way, I, I had never been married before, although I had dated, but it, it never seemed to go very well when I was working all the time. I, I was really enjoying my business and my life, and I met somebody and fell in love. And, uh, you know, four or five years later, we got married. Um, and I think 
being happy and starting my own business and actually allowing time to have a relationship. Uh, at the time, it was long distance, but now we're, you know, now we're married and living together. I think that allowed me to, um, you know, sort of find, finally get fulfilled in my personal life. And it wasn't like I wasn't fulfilled before. I just didn't necessarily have time for it. And ironically, like I wasn't out there looking, um, you know, I I was old enough where I didn't think you know, I would ever get married, but um, I was really lucky that I I met somebody who who had been a business owner and sort of understood my journey and was actually very helpful and encouraging to me uh, in terms of starting my own business and you know raising my rates and you know giving me a lot of good good advice from somebody who ran a much larger company. Um, I wanted to stay small because I did not want to go big. Like I just I I knew my niche and that's where I I kind of wanted to say, but I will say that finally taking a breather, um, it also allowed me to get a lot healthier and kind of get involved in, you know, uh, Pilates or yoga. Um, I like to meditate every day. And there would be times when in when I was working for a corporate, you know, I'd be like meditating in the shower for five minutes every morning because that was the only time I had. And it's like, oh, I can actually take a breather now and enjoy life. So I feel like even though that change was hard and it was a lot to get up and going, I think that first year or two, um, it really just allowed my personal life to open up. Um, it's funny because I know I know a lot of single women and they were like, how did you meet your husband? And it was somebody I had known uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, so there was that, but the other thing is I wasn't really looking like I was out there being happy with my work and my house and was feeling really good about myself, which I hadn't in, in like about 10 years, the last 10 years of the corporate world just had been, I felt really grueling. So I think finally getting to that space where I could breathe a little bit and, um, having more time to myself just sort of allowed me to all of a sudden find this, you know, great loving relationship. Absolutely. How do you keep that side to the personal life in check as far as, well, if you have a project that's really taking up a lot of your time or basically you, you don't have this type of issue? Because really what I'm looking at is, you know, you, you're running a business that's taking uh, your energy and time, but you also have family, health, and other aspects. Right. I'm, I'm also, I'm, I want to hear from you. How do you manage all of the above? First of all, I'm lucky that well, the last time I got my first, the first time I was married and I got a really kind of intense contract that was going to be a lot of work, I told my husband, I said, hey, I'm going to be working like days and nights and weird hours, just heads up. And, you know, and he was like, what can I do? He's like, okay. I mean, he was great. He understood about it. He goes, what can I do to support you? And I'm like, you can deal with food and dinner and all that stuff. So I go, don't ask me what's for dinner. I'm like, I just need you to deal with that for these three months. And he was like, all right, I can do that. Um, he probably ate out, <laughs> take out a little more. Absolutely. Than I would usually admit. <laughs> but it was fine. Like he took care of it <laughs> to the best of his ability. Absolutely. So he was, he was very supportive. And, um, you know, the rest of my family, I have a, a mother who lives with us. She was very supportive. And even though she's older, she, she was willing to, to deal with some extra house stuff, or make some calls for me. And so, um, I, 
you know, basically told my family, look, hey, you know, I'm just not going to be able to do a bunch of this stuff. They were very supportive and they were willing to pick up the ball. And I, but I was also very like, look, it's for three months, like just, you know, and then we can kind of get back to a normal thing. Um, my husband and I try and have a date night at least once or twice a week where we just literally leave the house and go out, spend an afternoon together or do something fun, right? Um, just to make sure we have that sort of one-on-one time because otherwise it's, you know, it's grocery list and laundry list. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you got to fix this. Today I was telling me you had to fix something. He's like, what? No, that's <laughs> good. Uh, that's great. Thanks for showing that. You know, and I meditate, you know, I meditate, I go to yoga. I find that's really helpful every day. You know, even when I was working, I was still finding time to make sure I, you know, got in like 45 minutes of exercise every day. Cause that actually really helped me with my work. You know, I think it helped my brain work through problems. But yeah, I'm lucky. It's supportive and they understand um, that it's like that. Full time, I'm not sure how it would work like it, it used to, but I'm lucky I'm in this position. Okay, beautiful. So being uh, open, being transparent and encouraging or making sure there's good, good communication and setting expectations if it, for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, just say, hey, for this couple of this period of time, I'm not going to be able to do X, Y, Z. Okay, that's great. Now, now that you're on the business, how big is your business as far as, are you easy uh, by yourself? Do you have part-time, full-time contractors? Yeah, I would say it's mostly me, although... I have one or two people that occasionally I will hire to help me teach a class um, or do some extra work. I mean, of course, I've got um, some web people and some marketing people and right. I have a list of, of people that I pay part part time for stuff. I am sort of unusual. I don't really want to take my business huge, huge and have a lot of people working for me. <laughs> I, I like keeping it small because it's just it's more what my mind can handle. And I like the fact that, okay, if I want to work six months this year, that's fine. I work six months and I'm okay with that. Right. You know? Um, um, so, um, but yeah, no, and I, I have people, I have a good accountant. I have a good attorney. I've got a good web guy, right. I've kind of people in place who monthly will check in and keep stuff going for me and work on what they have to work on. Um, periodically, I might hire a virtual assistant if I get really slammed. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll work with an assistant or something like that. But um, you know, after being in business for a long time, I certainly have a a network of people who are available to me if I need to bring them in. And there are also, I will tell you this: there are jobs where people call me, and I'm like, I'm not the right person, but I know exactly who you need. So, how did you build? So, you probably want to go back into narrow lanes here, but how did you build that network? No matter if it's a couple of VAs, accountants, attorneys, tech folks, how do you build your own network that allows you to give you the comfort level and the confidence to move on? and move forward with your with your gig and your business? Well, um, first of all, when I was younger, I volunteered for whatever I could in whatever business capacity. So, you know, at those PMI um, conferences, I was running around meeting these executives and escorting them from one room to the other. And I would talk to them and ask them pertinent questions. I wouldn't be, oh, hey, hi, you know, what about the weather kind of thing, right? Yeah, I would... Yeah. I would try and find. I would try and look up their background and ask them some questions or things that I wanted to know about how they got to where they were going or why they were doing it. So um, I would say, you know, you got to have a plan, right? If you get in a room full of people, make sure you ask some interesting questions or 
you know, take advantage of it. But I started volunteering at a lot of stuff. Um, any networking events PMI had or some local business organizations had, I went and I started talking to people. Anytime people asked me to like join join a board, for instance, I said yes. <laughs> so, you know, I did a, I started out volunteering and then a lot of those opportunities, right? Kind of build your network from there. Um, I also will say this, you know, when I see switch jobs, you tend to switch jobs a lot, or layoffs or takeovers. But I, you know, I tried not to leave any job badly. I tried to finish up my work and just be professional about leaving, whether I got laid off or the company was taken over by another company. But I tried to always leave on good terms so those executives would remember me. We had one, well, I, there was one larger company and they had about, I don't know, they had a few thousand layoffs and people were not happy and they were hysterical. But it was a good job for me. And on the last day when I was laid off, I merged in just told the CEO I wanted to shake his hand and told him it was a good experience for me and that I respected him and that I would always work for him again. And it was true. Like I, I wasn't blowing smoke or anything there, but, um, you know, I felt like that. And he, uh, you know, he's actually referred stuff to me 10 or 20 years later. Okay. That's, that's great. I mean, building and keeping those relationships, yeah. um, obviously it goes a long way. That's for sure. How, so I could tell that you've been yourself uh, management, in a management role, working out with a lot, of, a lot of executives. From your exposure to that uh, circle, what are the top um, challenges, if you will, that they have and that they feel? It could be personal, it could be business, it could be grants, it could be whatever the case may be. I have my own take on it based on my experience, but I, I love to hear yours before I go. Well, I think there's a lot of a buzz right now about transformative leadership because, you know, it's not just going in and leading a company, it's going in and leading a company and, oh my gosh, the pandemic hit. How do we still be successful? How do I still pull the company together, right? Um, I mean, obviously, if it's a public company or, um, you know, these are large companies, so they're under a lot of financial pressure, right? They they have to make the books look good. And then they have, they have client satisfaction, right? There's always the client satisfaction. Uh, there's a net promoter score, which is talked about a lot in IT. What's your net promoter score? Things like that. So I kind of feel like they're either worried about finance, they're, they're worried about staffing, they're worried about, you know, what happens if I get hacked? What happens if there's another pandemic? You know, and of course, there's always numbers, right? Because usually there's a board they're reporting to or somebody that that they have to explain the numbers to. How are the numbers looking? How do we predict our quarter? Um, so I I feel like they're bogged down in a lot of the hardcore business minutia, kind of. Um, and then, yeah, they still have to figure out sort of an umbrella about how do I want to lead and how do I want this company to look, right? How do I want this company to act? You know, how do I want this company to be? And, you know, some companies have a better field than others too. I, I think that has a lot to do with the CEO and, and who's leading. His stuff does filter down from the top. So if you have a, a strong leader who cares about people or cares about the world or um, wants to make a difference, you, you feel that in the lower ranks. 
Absolutely. To that, I want to add the fact that, at least from my uh, experience, the fact that there's so much to learn at that level. What I'm talking, what I'm saying is, technology is growing, social is growing, businesses is growing. Expectations from not just the the board, but more importantly from the client base, is changing over time. That the support that those, I guess, before maybe 10, 20 years ago, the leader or the leaders were superheroes. Like they, they were expected kind of to know everything, but now I feel like it's shifting from, okay, don't look at them from, they know everything, but, but look at them from, you know, they need your help, they need support, they need your input as well in order to be better and bigger. So that support system from a, a professional and business standpoint, I think, I think it's something that is an area where there is a lot to provide. I mean, you're, you're a good example here where, you know, if there's a disaster recovery plan to be put together or applied integration, not the migration to be put together. They're not going to be necessarily looking in-house and be expected to have the answer. They'd be looking outside and say, hey, who can help me here? Okay, yeah, Catherine, let me reach out to her because, you know, from an efficiency standpoint, she have the the right solution. So that's kind of what I've noticed as far as, um, I call it support and help in other in order to, to help them, you know, bid better and bigger before you only have maybe the IBMs of the world and the mechanics and all that. But now the niche, the different niches uh, as far as skill set and expertise are really making a big uh, difference. Uh, at least that, that's what I noticed, not just different, but also moving the needles for them. So I just uh, wanted to add that as well. Yeah, I feel like CEOs are under so much pressure, right? It's a tremendous amount of pressure. And so, and I've I've literally had, you know, one or two CEOs say to me, look, I need you to fix this and I don't really want to hear about it. I just need it to be good. And if you can just Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I had that quite a few times where, yeah, if you will, I'll be X amount of dollars, figure it out and come back to me with with solution. So they basically, and, and to me, I think it's kind of smart because they're basically looking at you as a kind of peace of mind that, okay, you've been vetted. Uh, Please take this off my shoulder. You go ahead and fix it and come back to me with results or at least a recommendation or, or option for us to move the needle versus them being on top of it on a daily basis. Okay, cool. Um, in the next section here, what I wanted to touch on, Catherine, is your acquisition. So uh, what I could sense is that you're known in the marketplace. You don't really uh, have an acquisition problem. Is, is that true? If you want a new contract or if you want a new client, or a new gig, how do you typically go about it? Yeah, I'm, uh, well, first of all, I'm lucky. I worked for numerous consulting companies. We all had hundreds or thousands of clients. So, you know, for years of working with these clients, I had a network. So anytime I'm sort of interested in a job or want a new job, I've got about eight CEOs I call or CTOs. And I just say, hey, you know, I'm looking. And sometimes they call me back or sometimes they take six months or sooner or later they you know, will ping me. So I'm lucky that I have, you know, kind of a small network that I work with and I trust these guys. And I also usually know what I'm getting into when I work with them, right? I know I know their personalities. I, I know what, what is expected of me, right? I know what they're looking for. If there's a problem, um, I usually can understand it really quickly. But no, um, However, I will I will say this, you know, I've certainly garnered a lot of is interest when I'm out there doing a webinar or a seminar. Um, I um, had a, a, a VP of sales hire me to uh, teach their PMs, right? I did some training for some PMs. 
And um, other people heard about that. And sometimes that generated a lot of business just being out there teaching, right? Teaching project management methodology. Um, so um, um, I'm active on LinkedIn. You know, I'm, again, I'm on a board at UC Riverside as as an advisor, right? I take those opportunities. So had I not had those contacts, though, I think that, you know, I would be getting contacts through some of these other positions. So you think you're doing a volunteer seminar and then two years later, somebody will call you back and go, hey, you know, we're actually doing a disaster recovery thing and I think we need you or could you recommend somebody for us? So I've gotten a lot of stuff for just seminars and some of the volunteer stuff I've done. Okay, beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. How over the years, right, um, technology has changed, PMO project management has changed from the waterfall to agile and, you know, all the different nuances and all that. Same for cloud and and, and recovery, uh, disaster recovery. Roger, that's what I'd love to hear your, your, your take because you've been in the game for such a long time. How are you saying things change and where are you? Where do you see things go? You've seen things change yeah. across across the different years. And I love to hear uh, what you've seen, what your observation and uh, what you see coming. Well, you know, 20 years ago, people had an IT budget and maybe, I don't know, 20, 25% of that IT budget was towards security. Now, after 20 years, people have an IT budget and 90% is security, right? That I mean, so that, that IT budget, you know, while it's still there, the focus of that IT budget has changed. So much has changed towards security right now, right? So that's sort of the fast moving piece. And like, will that continue? Probably. <laughs> but so that, that's sort of been a focus, right? Security's really like come in, into the play in IT budgets. Um, and it's just become a, a bigger, badder piece of the IT budget where before, you know, in 2002, people weren't as worried that much about security. Yeah, so I think that's a big thing that has changed um, about IT. Um, I've certainly been through a couple of the, you know, dot-com ups and downs, right? Where, you know, people around 2002 were just making money for putting companies out there that really just had no value. Um, and I've certainly seen that in the marketplace. I, I will tell you years ago at one company uh, that was a startup, I was offered stock, but I didn't understand it and how it works. So I said, I would rather have a higher salary. <laughs> and I'm glad that I did because, you know, the stock was never worth anything um, and they never really went public. So it was, you know, so I negotiated for salary. So like, if you don't understand it, you know, try and understand it. Um, and, you know, if, I would say too, some of these valuations with companies, I'm like, if, if it doesn't feel right for you, then usually that's kind of a red flag. Um, you know, although some have been great ideas and have certainly, you know, done well and stuff like that. So um, I think that areas areas a little over now as companies are trying to get more and more angel funding. I think things have changed a little different. There's not a ton of angel funders out there funding everything. So um, you know, and the economy has changed too. So I think that, you know, plays plays into it. Um, as far as AI, I've just kind of started to delve into it with some of these larger companies. I think there's some great aspects to it to be used for project management to help you be more efficient. It's just, um, you know, I don't know if they can identify 
some of the problems, you know, some of the personal problems that you have, you know, as on a project management team, you know, you're, you're burnt out or it's politically tricky because it turns out this client is the CEO's best friend, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> so we'll see. I'm still excited I'm playing around with AI. Most companies I know have some security issues around it. So while they're looking at it, I, you know, I don't see anything being pushed heavily right now, although I'm expecting it to happen any day. No, that's great. Thanks for sharing. Here. Just quick question around what are your typical first step. So what do you get into a new project, right? You just got uh, getting started or the new gig, new client. Do you have a, the, the project uh, team, uh, the, the, what has been done? What, what kind of analysis do you go through just out of curiosity when you start up a new project to make, just to make sure you're on top of everything? But right. and you lead it. I'll be honest with you. The first week, right? Usually there's a lot of meetings and I try and spend the first week just listening to everybody on the team. I mean, regardless of whoever hired me has brought me in and told me then I really try and talk with the team individually. And I try just to listen to figure out what's going on in the meetings and why is this client frustrated or you know, why is this guy so snappy about this stuff? Right. Because usually there's some hot button issues. And so you know, it's, I don't go charging in like a bowl in a china shop, right? I really try to spend the first week just being nice and talking to people and being quiet and hanging out in the background. Then, you know, usually after a week or two is when I like, okay, we're going to change these meetings or I think this will be more efficient or we've had a request to do it that way. And I also ask the team, hey, like, this is what I've been hired to do. This is what I was told, you know, is the problem do you agree? Because, you know, the team might come back and be like, let me tell you what the real problem is and that management doesn't want to cop to or nobody's listening to me about. So, you know, I try and vet them all out like, hey, because, you know, management doesn't always identify problems or when things bubble to the top, they don't always get that information. So and I look for quick wins, like usually sometimes there's small stuff you can do right away to make the team happy and make it a quick win. And it might be like, why do we have to have a meeting at four o'clock on Friday? I hate this it's going on for years. I'm like, great, I'll cancel it. I'll move it earlier. All right. So I try and do a few quick wins with the team just to show them, hey, like I'm on your side. I'm trying to help you and I'm trying to help you get through this. But yeah, I really just try and listen, you know, that first week or two and just really try and figure out like, okay, you know, who's kind of paired up with who and politically what's going on. And, you know, are these the real issues, right? Are we really solving the real issues or is there something more underlying and deep that, you know, management has identified. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing. Um, this was a great conversation, Catherine. What I wanted to do now is for you, give us an opportunity to find out more about you. Where can we get a hold of you or maybe find out more about the beautiful articles that you have written in the past? Uh, please let us know. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Catherine Roy Lund on LinkedIn. So um, just follow me there and there's links to like my website and other places, but I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Thank you for coming on. Well, I'm going to link your, uh, your LinkedIn uh, URL below the video on the show notes. Thanks for your time and we'll definitely keep in touch. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much, Eris. I really enjoyed this.